Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the We Are Podcast on the DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcasting Network. And I can promise you, you're not going to hear uh, anything better about Penn State's new offensive coordinator, Andy Kotilnicki, than what we've got coming up in the second segment here. I interviewed on my radio show earlier in the week a reporter from the Lawrence Journal World in Kansas uh, who covered Kansas football. We talked extensively about the new offensive coordinator, what he does great, reasons to believe he could be outstanding for Penn State, and then also some question marks about, hmm, how's this guy going to fit with Drew Aller? So uh, I don't usually have a whole bunch of, uh, you know, uh, prepackaged interviews that I do in this podcast. I do host a radio show every week and I talk to very interesting guests. But uh, I just want to assure you, if you want to stick around, make sure you listen to the second segment. There is fantastic stuff. Um, Henry Greenstein was the young man's name. Just fantastic stuff. Uh, all your questions that you might have or thoughts about the new offensive coordinator, you can listen to that, uh, that podcast. It's outstanding. I'm going to get into the college football playoff here in just a moment. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, which I'll explain why in one second. But also in the third segment, I've got another, uh, prepackaged interview for you with the president and CEO of the Peach Bowl. Now, that might sound incredibly boring, and by the time you listen to this, you know, on Sunday afternoon, maybe Penn State's not even going to the Peach Bowl. If they are going to the Peach Bowl, you're certainly going to want to listen to that part of the podcast. But I would tell you this, if you're interested just in the way the bowl process works, why Penn State is an interesting and always a very good bowl uh, bowl choice for these bowls or choice for these bowls. You, you listen to the third segment, uh, with the president and CEO of the Peach Bowl. Again, I did it earlier in the week. I do still believe Penn State's going to the Peach Bowl. Um, that could change depending on what happens with the college football playoff, but I've got two tremendous segments for you again on the new offensive coordinator and then some insight and details on how the bowl process works. Really fascinating stuff. That's all coming up on the podcast a little bit later on. Now, I do want to mention, and again, if you if you listen to this afternoon on Sunday, uh, so a, it'll, a lot of it will be a moot point anyway, but we have a fascinating, fascinating situation in college football this year. College football playoff committee will announce the four teams in the playoff around noon on Sunday. Um, Alabama beats Georgia in the SEC title game. Florida State beats Louisville in the ACC championship game. So we've got some pretty fascinating stuff. Here's my thoughts on it just in general. And again, this will be moot because we'll already know the answer after many of you listen to this. But me personally, me personally, I would take Michigan, Washington, Texas, Alabama. I do think the committee is going to take Michigan, Washington, Texas, and I believe they're going to take Florida State with the fourth pick. I just don't believe the committee would turn down an undefeated Power 5 team. Florida State is an undefeated Power 5 team. They do not have their starting quarterback. Their backup didn't even play in the ACC championship game. They won with their third stringer. With Jordan Travis, the starting quarterback, if they were undefeated, yeah, they would be definitely in the playoff and nobody would have any argument about it whatsoever. I believe, I think most of you believe if you watch college football, Alabama would beat Florida State. 
All right. I mean, if you don't really believe that, you know, I, this Florida State team without the starting quarterback is a very, very, very different team. And so what are we trying to do here with the playoff? Are we trying to get the four best teams into the field? Are we trying to get the four most deserving teams into the field? Alabama is one of the four best teams. Georgia is one of the four best teams. Quite frankly, I can make a strong case that Ohio State is one of the four best teams. But Washington's going to get in. They're undefeated. Michigan obviously is in. Texas beat Alabama. Texas is the conference champ. They beat Alabama. Um, they're going to get in. So that fourth spot is up for grabs. Uh, to overlook an SEC team, an Alabama team that only lost one game to what will be the number three team in the country in Texas, and they beat the number one team in the country, that's that's pretty stout. Now, Alabama struggled with some other weaker teams this year, absolutely. And uh, Florida State is undefeated. I've long championed the, the sacredness of the regular season in college football. It's why I've always preferred having a four-team playoff, or maybe six. I think 12 is too many because... You can, you can finish with two losses and make the playoff all the time. That's why Penn State will benefit from it next year. You can finish with three losses and every now and then you might be able to make the playoff, or at least traditionally Penn State would have made it in, I believe, what, 2018. So I've always believed in, in the, the sacredness of the regular season in college football. The regular season matters more in college football than in any other sport. And if you lose a game, yeah, hey, you should get dinged. But with this playoff, I believe, me personally, my criteria is that you've got to get the, you're looking for the four best teams and you've got some maneuvering going on. Alabama's better than Florida State. I would take Alabama. I do think the committee is going to take Florida State. And again, once you listen to this, you're already going to have the answer. So, you know, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Just wanted to point that out that uh, I think that you're taking the four best teams. And then, boy, it should be very, very interesting. You got Michigan, should, I think, should beat Florida State pretty good in the first round. Washington and Texas play in the first round, and then we'll see how it all plays out. So, hey, stick around. You will not find more good information about Penn State's offensive coordinator than what you're about to listen to over the next 15, 20 minutes or so with the reporter from Kansas. This answers a whole lot of questions with regards to what Penn State can expect. And here's what I'll tell you basically going into it. I really like the hire. Andy Kotelnicki has a whole bunch going for him. Very creative offensive mind, has had a lot of success. Yes, there are questions because he's done it in the Big 12. I don't have a lot of respect for Big 12 defenses. But look, you know what? I mean, go, all things being equal, he's had success. He's called plays for a long time. Uh, I, I think this is a, a pretty good, a really good hire, a really good hire by James Franklin. But... Does this guy's offense fit Drew Aller? You know what? Listen to the upcoming interview. The reporter in Kansas says that Kansas offense was compared to the triple option and the wishbone. You think Drew Aller can run a triple option or a wishbone offense? This offense, this coordinator hire to me might be better for the future of Penn State football after Drew Aller because there's going to be a lot of, have to be a lot of, a lot of a, a adapting going on by Andy Kotelnicki with a pure pocket passing quarterback. Stick around and listen to all that coming up here in the second segment.
get to say it in, in, in real practice much in life. He's not in Kansas anymore. We've heard that line forever. But uh, Andy Kotelnicki is not in Kansas anymore. He will be Penn State's new offensive coordinator. We're going to go out to Kansas now. Welcome in Henry Greenstein from the Lawrence Journal World. He covers Kansas athletics for that publication. Henry, I appreciate you taking a few minutes to join me, buddy. How's everything going today, pal? It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, the, the, the mood in Lawrence today is probably one of concern, but I think that on your end, you guys uh, are likely pretty happy with, with what you've picked up today. This is considered a really good hire by Penn State. I want to probe and, and see if you agree with that, what makes it a good hire. I have some questions for you uh, as well about um, the level of defensive play in the Big 12. I'll get to all that. But what was the feeling about Andy Kotelnicki in Kansas within and around the program. How did people feel about his performance there? I think on the whole, he was widely beloved here with, with a few exceptions. You know, I, I think, first of all, this coaching staff as a whole at this point really can do no wrong in the eyes of the KU fans. I mean, just think about what the history of Kansas football was like for 15 years before, before Lance Leipold and company got here. I, I think that, uh, even if it wasn't someone whose offenses were as creative and as exciting to watch as Andy Kolnicki, you would have a certain level of loyalty. But because he did so much and because he often got so much with talent that wasn't at the level of the programs KU was playing against, um, I think he'll be well-liked here. And I think once the sting wears off a little bit from this departure, people will continue to have a, uh, a positive impression of Andy here in Lawrence. Explain the level of talent they get there, okay? Because we know the history of Kansas football has not been tremendously successful. Here at Penn State, 75% of the guys on the roster are probably four-star guys, all right? So what's the talent level like at Kansas? What's he been working with, um, two- and three-star guys, even, even that? Yes. I mean, let me give you an example based on this year. This year, KU had to play three different quarterbacks. One of them, Jalen Daniels, was a two-star recruit uh, from the Les Miles era who almost went to Middle Tennessee State before before KU came calling. And it was under Lance Leipold and under Andy Kulnicki that he became the preseason Big 12 Offensive Player of the Year. Unfortunately, this year for them, he only ended up playing three games due to a nagging back injury. So then you have Jason Bean, who was a sort of, you know, a, a, an occasional starting quarterback at North Texas who got beaten out by Daniels for the starting job and really was not like much beloved here by, by KU fans for quite a while and started putting up some really like seminal performances down the stretch this year. And then once Bean got hurt, you're dealing with a freshman former walk-on, Cole Ballard, the son of Indianapolis Colts general manager, Chris Ballard, who had never played before and they almost won against Kansas State with him at the helm. If not for a dropped pick six and a fumbled punt, they would have won that game with the freshman walk-on quarterback. So, yeah, the the, uh, the level of talent you're dealing with at Kansas is, is getting better, certainly. I mean, you look at the 2024 class, they got some really, really good four-stars coming in. But it's on a different plane from what Penn State fans are accustomed to, I'm sure. Henry Greenstein from the Lawrence Journal World. All right, I want to get your thoughts on what you were watching with Kansas football. Describe the offense from play to play, series to series. We've got all these video clips all over the internet that show these neat, creative play schemes and designs. And Is that the offense? Is it just some one wacky kind of thing after another and you're just trying to 
uh, out, you know, trying to fool people on each given play? Or, or is there a base offense and then some of these other things that they do are, are a little more, you know, uh, kind of unusual or niche kind of things? Yeah, I definitely think when you see those super cuts of wacky plays, it does give you a little bit of a misconception for a couple of reasons. First of all, I mean, not every play do we have a guard lined up in the slot and, and going in motion and crushing a guy. Or not every play are there two quarterbacks in the backfield and whatnot. Uh, Andy Kolnicki will tell you, and I'm sure he will tell tell you guys soon enough, that it is a multiple pro-style offense with spread concepts. That's what he calls it. Um, really, I think the pro-style moniker is a little overstated because they really do run out of the spread quite a bit. But um, and I think often what's important about an offense led by Andy Coleman is what happens before the snap. Uh, it's all about the motion and putting defensive players in uncomfortable matchups and requiring them to constantly check and recheck and make sure they're lined up with the right guy. I mean, so that's part of why those supercuts are deceptive because what happens before the play is really what's more important. I mean, you'll see plays where they have like start out in a wildcat look and then they motion into more of a normal formation. And then they do like inside zone or whatever, but it goes for 15 yards because people were so confused by what happened before the play. Or you'll see something where like half the offensive line will be out uh, on the perimeter or whatever, and then they'll come in and they'll run inside zone and get 15 yards. So it's, it's really more about using stuff like that to set up normal looks than it is about the crazy ones. And admittedly, I mean, it is fun to see. I'm sure everyone's seen by now the play where like Jalen Daniels takes a snap, he hands it off to B and then Bean rolls right and hits the, the post route or whatever. Um, but that's only a portion of it. Um, as, as Kodanicki likes to compare it to, it's like a giant bucket of Lego pieces where each added piece you put upon the base is a little wrinkle that makes it more confusing to the opposition, but not necessarily to the people participating in the system. Henry Greenstein from the Lawrence Journal World. I love everything that you just said. That sounds awesome. I'm a big offense guy. If I had to watch Iowa every week, I'd probably uh, you know, go, go take a nap somewhere or watch some paint dry on the wall. So everything that you're saying sounds awesome, okay? Now, here are the issues. Me personally, I don't think Big 12 defense is very good at all. Okay. So mm-hmm. my question to you is how does this work within the framework of the Big 12? What's your feeling on Big 12 defenses in general? How will this stuff work against a Big 10 physical, rough, punch you in the mouth kind of defense? I, I agree. I agree with you. And I had a feeling this is where this was going because I've already seen some reactions like this online. And yeah, I mean, certainly that's worth some concern. But, uh, and I, I did see a lot of bad defense this year. Uh, KU against UCS, KU against Cincinnati, teams that were just misaligned and really weren't prepared to deal with it at all. But on the other hand, I mean, Iowa State, that's the, you know, John Haycock over there is like the, the progenitor of the 335 scheme. They had given KU a lot of trouble in years past. KU is pretty good against them. And, you know, if you want to see him against a Big Ten defense, you can watch KU against Illinois from this year. And like I said, with probably overall less talent in terms of star ratings and whatnot than you would have at Penn State. So that's one thing. And then also, I had seen some old quotes from James Franklin when they played against, uh, you know, Leipold's Buffalo teams. And mm-hmm. even then he was impressed by it. But one thing that I think could be an area of concern is short yardage. 
that was a, a bugaboo for KU this year. They had a game at Oklahoma State that they lost primarily because they couldn't make two-point conversions and a game at Texas Tech that they lost in large part because on one trip to the goal line, they called halfback dives out of the pistol on third and goal and fourth and goal from the one and couldn't get in. And one drive where they had to settle for a field goal because they called a halfback pass out of the wildcat. On how much? I'm just so, curious your thoughts yeah. on this, Henry. How much of that, how did KU match up? physically at the at the point of attack on the line of scrimmage was this just that they couldn't because maybe of their uh, uh, of what Kansas football is that they just didn't quite have the linemen to go toe to toe with some of these other defensive linemen would that be an issue for the short yardage situation in previous years maybe but but in this year they were actually like one of the best blocking teams in the Big 12 just looking at PFF I think like they were second or third uh, in terms of their overall offensive line output they they really put an emphasis on becoming a much more physical team in the off season. And it paid off even like, to be clear, just as I'm saying they're starting out with less highly touted players doesn't necessarily mean that they've got a bunch of like scrubs out there yeah, by yeah. any means. Uh, they, yeah. They, they were, they were really effective up front this year. Interesting. Uh, this is great stuff. I, I love talking to people who have actually seen this stuff in practice. Here, here's an interesting question from the Penn State perspective. I don't expect you to be, be an expert on the Penn State personnel, but I want to go down the quarterback rabbit hole with you a little bit. Mm-hmm. When you're watching Kansas play, how much of a threat is the quarterback to run the ball? How much of what they're trying to accomplish under Andy Kotelnicki is the quarterback's ability to keep a defense honest with his legs and and, and just in general, the, the notion of the kind of misdirection or whatever, how much of that came came to be because maybe you, you had a little bit of a mobile quarterback or a very mobile quarterback in a Jalen Daniels. Well, how much of the offense was centered around that single element? Yeah, that's a good point because I know Penn State doesn't have that. They do not have that. Well, I'll get to that in a second with yeah. Drew Aller, but that, that's what Penn State does not really have with Drew Aller. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it, it was undeniably a big part of it. I mean, if you listen to any opposing coach this year, they compare KU to triple option teams. Mm. BYU's defensive coordinator, Jay Hill, said that preparing for KU was like preparing for Air Force. Mike Gundy said that Kotelnicki was in some ways like a traditional wishbone guy. And when I asked Kotelnicki about that, he said, well, if he knew that I played in a wishbone offense when I was playing in college, I'm flattered. Uh, Texas Tech's defensive coordinator, Tim DeRoyter, said that, again, like triple option. So that does rely on having the quarterback as an option to run. And Jalen Daniels is good at that. And Jason Bean, many people consider to be like the second fastest guy on the team. So, or maybe even the fastest. Um, so, yeah, that was a big part of it. But... Andy does often say that the only reason why the scheme is like that is because it's tailored to like the skill sets of his individual players. So I don't think that he'll try to force that on Drew Aller or, or the rest of Penn State. Um, you may see things from him that you've never seen him do at Buffalo or Kansas or even Wisconsin Whitewater that are based on the scheme itself. I also think that part of the intricacy of what he's been running at KU is because this year's team was super experienced. KU had the most returning production in the country, according to ESPN. Um, so they were able to layer on more stuff than it would be like if you just had a fresh group of players. I'm not totally sure that first year Andy Kotelnicki at 
Penn State will will be doing all the bells and whistles. But I could be wrong. We'll see what happens. Henry Greenstein from the Lawrence Journal World. This is fantastic insight because because now I do want to get to the kind of the hour component. He's six foot five, two hundred and forty two pounds. Um, you've seen this offense. You've seen this offensive coordinator. We're hearing on this side that he can adapt to the personnel. What does a Penn State offense then look like, in your opinion or your projection, with a six foot five, two hundred and forty two pound quarterback? Yeah, I think that you probably won't see a lot of the the same the same uh, the same like two quarterback sets, and probably not as much wild. Well, the, the backup here's yeah. the thing: the backup here, just, just for your knowledge, Penn State fans all know it's the backup here is Bo Prabula. Who basically is a running back who plays quarterback. He, he, oh, okay. Rarely, he was eight for 18 going into the last regular season game. He had a couple passes, but he basically just, he's, he was the third leading rusher on the team when he comes in. Now, a lot of times it was mop up duty, but he was just going to take off and run eight, 10, 12 times. He, they never even looked to throw with him. So, well, then he'll love, yeah, he'll love using him then because I mean, the last two games, especially when the third stringer Ballard was playing, they started running speed option to the left with Tory Lachlan, a, a former high school quarterback who's sort of a backup running back slash slot slash special teamer guy for KU. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw some of that kind of thing with Trevula, even if he's not getting starting time. But yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it'll look like. You probably have to go back to the Buffalo days and dig up some of that tape. Um, I think he'll still try to get Aller outside the pocket, even if he's not going to have like a like a sprint out play, like you would see with Jason Bean. Um, but yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see for sure because it's it's such a different paradigm from what he's been in the last three years. This is this is just great because again, I, I really like the hire. I I love Lance Leipold. I'll, I'll get your thoughts on here to close in just one second. Um, and a lot of people here really like the hire. I just I just have a, a lingering doubt with this offense with a pure pocket passer. Should we mm-hmm. be concerned that Penn State has a pure pocket passer or or will this or will Andy Kotelnicki find a way for a year? We don't know if Drew will be here for one more year, two more years. He's got to perform better. But sh- should there be any concern that Andy can adapt? He ain't running the triple option or the wishbone with Drew Aller. That's that's just not happening. So how 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 might that play out from what you've seen? Yeah, I, I, I think there will probably be a lot more reliance on, I guess, less option and more straight up power run concepts, which again, work well for KU. They did that. Yeah, they I'm did really that not, well. Did yeah, they do the, the power run concept pretty well? Oh, for sure. I okay. mean, I, you just got to see the numbers Devin Neal's put up this year, the yeah. numbers that Daniel Hyshaw has put up. Absolutely. Daniel Hyshaw, kind of a prototypical power runner. He had, didn't do as well the latter, latter part of the season, but they did a good job getting him up the middle and allowing him to kind of bowl guys over. But yeah, I, I, I would expect to see the option part contracted uh, substantially, at least in the early going. Um, but it's anyone's guess. I, I certainly, that remains an open-ended question. And I think a lot of what you guys will have to watch in the spring is just what that looks like and, and whether like exactly how he adapts to having a quarterback who isn't a rushing threat. How well thought of is Lance Leipold there? I, I, I wrote about this. I talked about it on the show yesterday. I first 
you know, kind of caught up with him when he was at Buffalo and had the tremendous success at Wisconsin Whitewater, where I think his record was like 482 and two or some crap. No, mm-hmm. it's 109 and six and he won six national titles. They never lost. So, and, and now he, it looks like he's performing miracles at Kansas in the wake of the whole Les Miles disaster. So how well thought of is he there? Yeah, every, he's quickly becoming incredibly beloved here. I would not be surprised to see another adjustment to his contract in the near future. A lot of people were talking about that after Bill Self got his amended lifetime contract. And just to be in the same breath as Bill Self as a coach at Kansas is a, is a pretty high honor. And also, I mean, eight and four at Kansas is one thing, but you look at a game like that Kansas State game or the Oklahoma State one or the Texas Tech game I mentioned. I mean, they could have had 10 wins this year if they had been a little less sloppy in key moments. So certainly uh, a lot of progress being made and a lot of love for Lance Leipold here. Hey, man, fantastic stuff. That's just tremendous. Henry Greenstein from the Lawrence Journal World. Really, really great insight, Henry, uh, about the new offensive coordinator here. I can't thank you enough for the time, buddy. Appreciate the time. Thank you very much. My pleasure. All right, thanks so much. We're going to step away for a quick break, Take, uh, take some of your phone calls after this. phone lines and uh, we are pleased to be joined now by Gary Stoken who is the president and CEO of the Peach Bowl. Glad we were able to make this happen today. Gary, do we have you with us on the line, buddy? How you doing? Great. Great, Corey. How are you? I am excellent. I I really appreciate you taking a few minutes to join us to kind of work out how the bowl process works. So what's interesting from the Penn State perspective, Gary, is that Penn State has never been to the Peach Bowl. So right. does how much does that make a program, not just a Penn State, but when you have a, a large national program, how much does that make a program more appealing to to a, 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 a place in the bowl process? Well, being in my 26th year and being originally from Pittsburgh um, and never having Penn State and having followed them um, during the Joe Paterno years would be, be wonderful to have the Penn State brand playing our game, the Penn State uh, family and administration and team and coaches and great fan base come down to Atlanta and enjoy the holiday down here. But um, certainly Penn State would be very meaningful for us because it's a, it's a huge brand, one of the best top 10 best brands in college football. So, uh, yeah, we'd be Really happy should the CFP selection committee make that decision to put Penn State in the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. As of right now, most of the national analysts have Penn State going to the Peach Bowl. There is a possibility for the Cotton Bowl, possibility for the Fiesta Bowl. Can you explain to us the process, how it works? You just mentioned the playoff committee. Who, who actually makes the final decision now as opposed to, you know, maybe years ago? when bowl representatives were out and, and kind of making these decisions? Yeah, this being my 26th year, I used to be responsible for making that selection. And when we joined the CFP in 2014, I called Bill Hancock Saturday night and I said, Bill, you're going to call me. Let me know who we got, right? 
He laughed and he said, Gary, you'll find out when the rest of America finds out. Is that right? So we literally will sit just like you will on Sunday. (laughs) And at 12 o'clock, the um, ESPN will come out with a top six teams and they'll play number one in either the Rose or the Sugar. And then they'll play number four and then two will play three in the other bowl. Um, And then the selection goes back to the Orange Bowl committee. Uh, outside of the CFP selection committee because the Orange Bowl committee has a contract with the ACC and they're obligated to take the highest ranked ACC team that is not in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So give you an example, if the season ended today, Florida State would be in the playoff at number, number four. Uh, the Orange Bowl would be obligated to take Louisville. Then on the other side, the Orange Bowl committee has to select between the highest ranked team in the SEC, Big Ten, or Notre Dame. So again, season ended today, that would be Ohio State. It would be number five. So you'd have Louisville, Ohio State, and the Orange Bowl, and then it would go back to the CFP selection committee. They will place the highest ranked uh, group of five champions in either the Fiesta, the Cotton, or the Peach, and then they'll take the next five highest-ranked teams and put them in the Cotton, Fiesta, and Peach Bowl. And what That's the way the process will work? And what is their criteria for how they do that, Gary? I can sit here and say in Central Pennsylvania, hey, it'd be great for Penn State to go to the Peach Bowl. They've never been there. They've never been to Atlanta. They were in the Cotton Bowl four years ago. They were in the Fiesta Bowl five years ago. It would make sense to send them somewhere they've never been. Does the, does the playoff committee, do they think about those kinds of things? What Can you share some insight into their criteria, their thinking, in, in how they determine kind of who goes where, which will benefit the the programs, will benefit the localities. You know, sending people teams to maybe locations they haven't been to before. Just all those kinds of scenarios. Sure. Yeah, I've been in uh, the room in Gaylord, Texas, with all the computers sitting there and been through a mock selection. And uh, basically, the criteria is you sit there, and each of the committee members is asked to put their top four teams in the computer. And then uh, they spit out, okay, who's one, two, three, and four. Then they ask for the next four, then the next four, and the next four, and the next four. And then you finally get the 25, and it spits out the consensus of the top 25. And then everybody starts to look and say, well, you know, we have this team ranked ahead of this team, but they lost to this team. So you get into a dialogue and a debate, and they start to look at, well, maybe we ought to put this team ahead, and et cetera. In this week, what they're going to go through is, okay, now we have conference champions. Conference champions are the, the ultimate. That, that's, that's very important to be a conference champion. Um, head-to-head matters. Top 10 wins, top 25 wins matter. There is such a thing as, take Penn State, there is such a thing in the nomenclature of the CFP of quality losses, right? I mean, Penn State played the number five and number two team, lost to them, but those are quality losses rather than losing to a a team that's not ranked or a team that's ranked number 25 when you get down to it Mm -hmm. and you start to compare resumes. So that's kind of the process they'll go through. Um, 
They don't look at last year. So Georgia winning the national championship means nothing. Um, they do take into consideration head to head. So Alabama losing to Texas in Alabama matters. Uh, they will not do rematches. So let's say, uh, Penn State, Texas, Alabama, Missouri, and, uh, Oregon are the five teams that aren't in the Orange Bowl or the top, uh, the rows of the sugar semis. Uh, they wouldn't match up Texas and Alabama against since they played in the regular season. What about Gary? Penn State plays Washington next year with Washington joining the, the big, Doesn't matter. big 10. That, Doesn't that matter. won't matter. There, there still could be a Penn State Washington bowl matchup. Nothing matters next year. Nothing matters last year. It's hmm. all about what did you do this year on the field against who you played in your conference and non-conference record. What about if you've played a team in a bowl game recently or you've been to a bowl game? Like Doesn't matter. That, they don't take that into consideration for the Doesn't criteria? Matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter that Penn State's never been to the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. I mean, they just they just look at, you know, here's where a team deserves to go because this is what it did on the field this year uh-huh. and against this these opponents. That's very intriguing because we've always kind of been led to believe that bowls want the best matchup for their individual bowl and, and so we, on and so forth. We have no say-so whatsoever. I mean, I have no say-so on – Who's coming this year to our game? Do the, believe it or not, does the committee? Um, does the committee? Again, I'm just going to throw this out. Penn State was in the Cotton Bowl in 2019. You mentioned it's only this year. Would, would do they even consider that? Would Penn State fans want to go back to Dallas four years later? Would Dallas want them back four years? Is that part of the criteria in any way? No, no, no. Doesn't matter. Huh? They just look at this year what's the right matchup and where to put them. And at the end of the day, they know that either Cotton Fiesta or Peach are all first-class bowl games. Sure, yep. Played in NFL stadiums. All our all of our volunteers and our staff do tremendous jobs in hosting people. So they know they can't go wrong in placing them in any of the, the three so-to-called at-large uh, CFP games. So it really is just, Here's who you deserve to play based on what you did this year. Nothing matters about last year, next year. Now, the interesting thing to your earlier point is just doing some research. If, if, and again, I don't have any say so, it's up to the CFP selection committee. If they place Penn State in the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, first time ever in the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, but if they win, they would be the first bowl to win all of the New Year's Six Okay. Yeah. Yep. Pretty interesting. Gary Stokins, president and CEO of the Peach Bowl. Uh, Penn State's sitting there tenth. Everybody is assuming they're going to be in a New Year's Six game, uh, but some things could potentially happen this week. What well, What would be the worst case scenario for Penn State that uh, if there are some upsets that could potentially knock them out? Oh boy. Well, you know, you got one one way to look at it, it goes chalk where Georgia wins, Michigan wins, Washington wins, and Florida State wins. Um, they're all undefeated. They more than likely all would go up, right? Um, which means then you've got Alabama, Oregon, Ohio State, Texas, 
Penn State, Missouri, uh, and a group of five teams in Louisville. It would all be in the mix for uh, the four bowl games. So you need eight teams. Mm-hmm. One of those has to go to a group of five. So you need seven teams. So you really have to be in that top 12 to be even be considered, I think, at this juncture. Now, what if Iowa wins and beats Michigan? What if uh, Oklahoma State wins? You know, if you start to get some upsets, now that really shakes things up. So it's hard to pick one team and say, well, here's how they get in or not get in because there's so many ramifications down the line of other games that could impact other teams. So it's very hard to say this, this has to happen for Penn State to be in or for Penn State to be out. Last thing for you, Gary, you've been there a long time. Uh, if you're trying to uh, convince Penn State fans from all over the country, not just here in Central PA, to take the trip to Atlanta if they go to the Peach Bowl. Uh, the stadium is gorgeous down there, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It's, it's spectacular. What would what would you tell Penn State fans to say, hey, here's what you could look forward to if you come on down? Well, a couple things. One is we are not a destination point at that time of the year. So with 16,000 hotel rooms in downtown, you can get a really good rate on a hotel. So it's not very expensive. Well, there's, there's the first selling point right there. Cause a lot of that's, that's not right. the case for a lot of bowl games. They can be very, very expensive. Exactly. Number two, we're an easy drive for a lot of people from Pennsylvania. Um, you know, down 75 or 85. And once you're in town, because we're such a walkable city, when you're in your hotel, you can walk to. Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which I think is the best stadium in the in the country right now. Our concessions are the lowest of any NFL stadium in the country. Um, you got the College Football Hall of Fame, which is a must-see and must-do if you come to Atlanta. You got the world's largest aquarium, which is another must-do. You got the World of Coke. All those are next to each other, which are right across the street from Centennial Olympic Park which is across the street from State Farm Arena, uh, where the Atlanta Hawks will play over that week. And it's right next to Mercedes-Benz Stadium, where we'll play the game, as well as the Georgia World Congress Center across the street, where we'll have our Fan Fest that morning and probably have 30,000, 40,000 people in Fan Fest before they walk into the stadium for the game. Um, so it's, it's uh, not expensive. You don't need a rental car when you're in town. You can walk to everything. Great restaurants, great shopping. And uh, Mercedes-Benz, we're going to be sold out. It's going to be a wonderful atmosphere. Uh, we'll promise you 72 degrees because we'll have the roof closed. So um, they'll have a great time. Very memorable experience. Awesome. Hey, well, uh, it, it appears kind of sort of that's probably what's going to happen, but We'll find out when you do. That's amazing that you guys don't get any any heads up on this until it actually shows up on the TV on Sunday. That's pretty wild, Gary. It's crazy, and it's fun. It's exciting. It's like Christmas. Being like a little kid, opening up two presents to see if you get a chance to host. And um, the other thing that we'll uh, definitely provide for people from Penn State is uh, a Pittsburgh hospitality for me and Certainly from uh, all of our volunteers and all the uh, great people in the hotels and everywhere else, restaurants, great Southern hospitality.
Awesome. Thanks for the time, partner. Really appreciate your insight, sir. Great. Thank you, and Merry Christmas to everybody. Merry Christmas to you as well. Gary Stoken, President and CEO of the Peach Bowl. 